Welcome to the Outside and Active podcast, where we talk to inspiring outdoors enthusiasts and share those conversations with you. I'm your host, Matt Coyne, and this week I have the pleasure of sharing my chat with Ben Fogel whilst we're at the National Outdoor Expo. He was such a humble man to speak to and shared quite a lot of his life experiences in just 30 short minutes of our conversation. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to give a big shout out to Whereabouts for being our season sponsor of the Outside and Active podcast. Whereabouts are a newly relaunched travel agent sending people on their bucket list adventure holidays every year from epic explorations, boundless backpackers to camper cruisers. You really will dig their tours. Visit whereaboutsholidays.com now. Whereabouts are you going? We've also got a great offer from our episode partner, Bushcraft Magazine, who organized the Bushcraft show. We're looking forward to this one this summer. It's going to be the perfect wild adventure for families. Spending three ethereal nights under canvas in lakeside glades while immersing yourself in woodland and water-based activities, spectacular evening entertainment and inspiring talks from outdoor legends including Ed Stafford. Centrally located, dog-friendly and in late July there's no excuse to miss out. And we've secured a family ticket for four, an adult weekend ticket and one year subscription to the Bushcraft magazine for one lucky listener. Head over to outsideandactive.com forward slash bushcraft to enter and find out more details about the show. And now, back to the episode with Ben Fogel. So, Matt Coyne here from Outside and Active, and I have the honour of uh, Ben Fogel joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Good day. How are you, Ben? Good, thank you. I'm, uh, I've, do- I've done a little tour of the show so far, and it's for, for anyone that likes the outdoors, it's it's like being in a sweet shop. It kind of is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so have you brought your wallet to, uh, to buy a few I've, I've got, do you know what? I, uh, it, it is my weakness kit, <laughs> outdoor kit. I'm trying to, funny enough, it's this balance between being environmental and thoughtful and a, and a, and a considerate consumer, mm-hmm. but also the fact that you need to have that new piece of kit. <laughs> it's really it's hard. A want and we're a all need, we're, isn't we're, it? we're kind of all seduced by it. But you know what I really do like from from what I've seen so far there's so many little independents and with all due respect to the big giants of the outdoor yep. industry it's really nice to see so many people being creative mm-hmm. um and innovative with yeah. with these smaller brands whether it is um outdoor clothing whether it is innovative kits, little rafts or pack rafts, all, all of these different uh, um, technologies. I, I find it really exciting and, and, and I like to see the growth of the kind of cottage industry when yeah. it comes to the outdoors. Which, you know, I've seen a lot here as well, but just generally lately, a lot of individuals or families who are sort of creating these new trips or experiences or things like just to encourage, like there's a genuine passion to encourage people to get outside. I think, I think lockdown has a, mm-hmm. a lot to answer for on, on a positive side, to be honest. I think a lot of people had those two years to think about mm-hmm. what they wanted in life, what gave them pleasure and what was missing from the market. Mm-hmm. So I've already just been to see a, a, a company that set up that was born through lockdown. And I, I would imagine if you go around um, the hall today, there's quite a few that were born in that period of great turmoil yeah. um, and out of, you know, out, out of the ills of, of COVID have, have been born wonderful, innovative yeah. um, businesses and, and, and companies. And so, yeah, more again, driven by the pure passion as opposed to I must do a job because. Well, you know, you don't realise what you have until you you yeah. don't have it anymore. Yes. And, and again, I don't want to dwell on no. lockdown, but it's been a big part of our lives for, for the last couple of years. And, and I think it took that moment of being locked indoors, 
if you didn't have access to an outside space to realize the the value of grass and trees and forest and rivers and lakes and and you know for me the outdoors has been such an important part of my life of, of my personal development it's it's been part of my confidence it's 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 been it it, it is a part of me it's like the blood that, that flows through my veins so suddenly to not have access to it i had a garden i was very lucky and I, you make the most of what you have so yeah. so the garden became my lifeline but i didn't have access to those forests and and the wider world that yeah, that is is so important to me and and i think people have all woken up to the power of the outdoors yeah and the potential i know it's sort of near me you know again my family we're very outdoorsy um but on the trails that used to run early in the morning i might spot another person um, whereas certainly through that period, but there'll be 30, 40 people out and it's dwindled a little bit and hopefully that will come back up again. There are so many more people exploring what's on the doorstep. But isn't it weird? I was just thinking about this as, as I came here today. It's called the outdoor show and yeah. you just talked about the outdoors. Isn't it weird that we have to differentiate? We don't talk about, uh, I'm really into the indoors. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I so love the indoors. It's just such a, oh God, yeah, no, I'm definitely going to get some indoor kit. Yeah. I, uh, I, I can indoor do it. Indoor kit. It's a show for that. But, but, it's, sure. kind of, but it's kind of funny, um, isn't it? That the, the outdoors is the niche, the unusual. It's yeah. the, it should be the other way around. It should be, it should be like, yeah, I'm a bit weird. I like to spend a lot of time indoors. Yeah. Uh, and instead it's, yeah, I'm a bit weird. I like to be outdoors. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, and, and this That's is really the shift that is happening now. I think more yeah. and more people are realizing with all due respect to those that have beards and Gore-Tex jackets of which I'm, I'm, I, mean, I, incl- I include myself in that, <laughs> but it's not just beards and Gore-Tex no. jackets that go to the outdoors. It's, it's families, it's youngsters and, and increasingly a more diverse mm-hmm. mix of, of, uh, different people from different backgrounds, which is yeah. so important because the outdoors has for a very long time and still is dominated by a certain sector. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's been one of my passions to just try and at least open the opportunities to yeah. a wider circle of, of, of outdoor enthusiasts. Well, and there's, there's people like Rianne from Black Girls Hike. I know mm-hmm. she's worked really hard to just kind of I guess maybe it is opening minds a little bit, but it's making it a little bit more accessible to to exactly that and more diverse. Ha, you know, I, it has been um, by the nature of the kits that people think they need to buy and accessing lots of these places, it has limited and um, uh, artificially held a certain sector back, whether that's from economic reasons, cultural reasons, there's a number of different things. And, and, I'm a positive campaigner. I've always been um, optimistic, hopeful, glass half full. And and for me, it's it's just about giving people the opportunities to at least experience mm-hmm. and embrace. And there's a lot of youngsters in inner cities that simply don't have access mm-hmm. to to the great outdoors. And for me, I, I, you know, I've been I, I've been in the outdoors sector, if that's what we're going to call it, for twenty. Yeah. Two years or so now, really in a, in a professional capacity, work wise, and uh, and it's it, it's one of my things going forward that I really want to try and improve the access for all. Well, maybe so. That's a good um, maybe segue. So I did uh, some of our audience for five questions, um, and we sort of grouped together a lot of responses. The first one's actually really from my wife, so it's um, it's not the rest of the audience, but definitely my wife. 
And this is something with New Lives in the Wild. Like, we love it. And I know lots of people do love it. And you had um, people like, I think it was Iona and Julian up in Scotland. Mm. Like that just seems incredible, but insane at the same time. Mm-hmm. But then also... Um, Kez and Natalie, mm-hmm. um, I think, which two very, you know, sort of almost polar opposites. But for us, what that's kind of done is I like, opened our minds a little bit more to just how different people are doing it and how they're coping with it. But from that, like, is, has there been one of those moments or one of those families or people that you've really stood out and gone, do you know what? Like, you've got this right. Like, this is incredible. I love the fact you've just name checked individuals that yeah. I've been with. And it, it, it means a lot to me that because I really get to know these people. I'm really invested in them. And and honestly, I get I often get asked, were there people you didn't like? Or it doesn't happen really. I could because I go into these with such an open mind that I'm ready for anything and I've experienced everything. It's it's very hard for me to be surprised now. But the beauty of um someone like Iona compared to Natalie, mm-hmm. their worlds are, so uh, are it, it's different planets. Yeah. But what they have both done is they have worked out a way to live the life that suits them mm-hmm. rather than squeezing that square peg into the round hole. There's so many of us that just aren't born into the life that, that we should be living. Mm-hmm. And by that, I mean, there are lots of people that are just, it happens to be that you were born on that street in that city or that town uh, or that little hamlet. And people just stay because that's what society expects of them. Well, this is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to then go to school and then I'm supposed to try and get to university and build up huge debt and get blah, blah, blah. But actually, if you take a leaf out of Iona, who was born into great privilege and had access to that great estate, or Natalie, who had tremendous mental um, welfare difficulties and still does, yeah. you take what you have and you make the most of it and you live the life that makes you happy. Mm-hmm. And and I've got this obsession with happiness now, just because society worships um, economics. Mm-hmm. Economics is seen as the the, the the benchmark of success. Oh yeah, he's really successful. She's really successful. They they're, they're millionaires, mm-hmm. or they, they they're on a salary of sixty thousand yeah. pounds a year. They're, yeah, they're doing really well. No, it should be they're really happy. Yeah. They're, they've really made it. That is a yeah. she's really happy. They are really happy. And for me. I think one of the reasons New Lives in the Wild has really captured a psyche and it's really become quite an extraordinary phenomenon. And when I say phenomenon, just because I don't just get people coming up to me going, oh, you're that bloke off the telly. I, yeah. I like that show. Did, did you do a show? Was it <laughs> an animal or something? Yeah. You did something. Are you that weird do- doctor from Embarrassing Bodies? <laughs> it's not. I've had all that before. But, it, but it's not just that. It's, it's people name mm-hmm. check and they say, Kez and Natalie, tell mm-hmm. me, tell me a little bit more because I was really moved by that. So, yeah. And and it means that I am making something that is genuinely inspiring people and actually making them, giving them the the, the ammunition yeah. um, or giving them the tools to make those changes themselves. Because I think if we walk around the show today, I bet I bet there's about twenty five percent of the audience that are just on the cusp of yeah. genuinely going off grid, going and living in a what, what is a new life in the wild for yeah. them and and remember it's all it's all relative so a new life in the wild for someone who lives in the center of liverpool could be just moving to the edge of town where there's a field next to them it's still a, a, a wilder life and for me I, I i kind of feel that there has to be a purpose for what i do now i'm not just making television for the sake of it i'm not i've done all that in the past you know when you're 
when you're career building and you're trying to reach that that point. And now I want to actually be a part of a movement that genuinely encourages and empowers people to make those those changes. Amazing. Very honorable to hear that as well. It's quite, I think um, I lost my father a few years ago. And one of the final things that he said was, does it make you happy? So I'm encouraged by what you said, but we regularly check ourselves kind of like, are we making that decision because we you know, must, you know, yeah. societal are you pressure? Co- are, or- you, are you conforming to the expectations of society or are you gonna are you going to move to your own beat and it's very easy to become the sheep um i think you know a lot of us you know we we want to conform we don't necessarily want to stand out Mm -hmm. um but actually if you if you're brave enough and by the way that's the common thread between all the people i've met over the years i've been to more than 100 people Mm. um it's it's a bravery (coughs) to actually make that that change to, yeah. to the status quo. Well, there was, and I forgive me, I've forgotten the names of the guys that went to Cornwall living, I think it was at Perrinport. Yeah. Dav- Davina, Davina and Todd. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Cause that was, that seemed like a was a, an East London family yeah. um, who, um, who wanted a better life for mm-hmm. their children. Um, uh, mixed race children mm-hmm. who uh, Davina had got, she'd got fed up of the, the kind of institution, I, I don't want to get into the whole no, racism thing, but she, by her, her description was she was fed up of the kind of institutionalized racism mm. that she experienced and her children were experiencing. And she wanted to have uh, a kind of freer, more liberal life. Mm-hmm. And the great irony is they moved to Cornwall, a place where they were much more of a minority yeah. than they were in East London but largely were met with great warmth. Yeah. Now, as it happens, funnily enough, that show did, was a little bit divisive and not because of racism, but they they don't necessarily live a life that everyone... Um, I'm being very careful with my words. Yeah, you can I'm see this. It's, Is it, it they, how they're set up? They, they, they had, you know, they weren't the tidiest yes. of people. They weren't, yeah. you know, they, they won't mind me saying that. They're, they, they're kind of almost hoarders yeah. in a way. I, th- I think they probably yeah. were. I think if I, to be honest, they were so li- so so open and honest. I think if you said to them, are you hoarders? They'd probably, or I don't think Davina was necessarily, but Todd would go, yeah, yeah Definitely I Definitely came across that he, way. He was. And, and listen, not everyone approved, you know, we all yeah. have neighbours that don't necessarily live as we would want to. Mm-hmm. And that was a case um, in point there. But I still found it really empowering to see that this was a couple who had made yeah. a go at, at, building a new life and it doesn't suit everyone and not everyone always approves but that's the beauty of the show that that they're all so different yeah definitely okay so the next one takes you back to 2009 um, when you rode the atlantic so this is from a a cornish gig rowing club um and they said within like when you when you or when you complete things like this there must be a huge sense of achievement and accomplishment and everything else but there must have also been a moment at some point in those 50 odd days that you were kind of like, well, what am I doing here? Oh, I mean, I have that every day. Every I mean, day. That, that was <laughs> that, that was a really difficult challenge because yeah. and, and not just because rowing the Atlantic is a difficult challenge. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sound glib. I've said this before. I think if I was to do it again tomorrow, I'd find it a walk in the park because it, it was where I was in my life. I'd never done anything like that before. Yeah. I'd never suffered that kind of sleep deprivation over that period of time. I'd never... I'd been away for that amount of time from friends and family, but never on an isolated ocean with yeah. with someone I didn't really know at that stage, James Cracknell. And uh, and I, fa- I, fa- I, I, I'm loath to say this because 
I always want to kind of tie everything up with a beautiful bow and make it all sound beautiful. But th- there wasn't much happiness during There's that no. row. It was, there weren't many. It, I don't, I didn't smile much. No. I don't think we laughed once. A few blisters. I it wasn't, it was well. just, it, it was a kind of a suffer fest really. Yeah. But it was the making of me. I yeah. learned a huge amount. Uh, and, and I think every challenge I've done since culminating in Everest uh, yeah. a few years ago, I couldn't have done any of those had I not really rode the Atlantic. Because it was the, le- the, the, it's the leg, you know, a lot of were, when I climbed Everest, you know, there's always going to be kind of skeptics and critics out there. And a lot of people said, well, you know, are you, is it really a mountain that you climb now? Is, is this really a challenge? And the, the other half said, um, should you even really be there? Cause you're not really a proper mountaineer. Right. So I'm just giving you the negative, the, the, some of the negative side, but my answer was always to climb Everest. You don't have to be an expert climber who has climbed hundreds of mountains yes you have to respect the mountains you have to understand mountaineering and you have to be incredibly competent and you have to have put in the due diligence and i did that i I climbed many mountains in the years leading up to it but for me my training was rowing the atlantic ocean it was walking to the south pole it was running the marathon des Sables because so many of these big challenges are mind over matter. It's not yeah. about the physicality of it. Now, obviously, technicality comes into it as well, and mountains involve more technicality than some other arts or disciplines, sure. like running across the desert, where you've got a pair of trainers and it's a war of attrition. Yeah. Um, but for me, it's all of those challenges that have built up to where I am now. Amazing. Amazing. Um, Okay, so the third question um, is a little bit different from these two. You like your open water swimming and mm-hmm. um, cold water swimming, but then there was quite a sensation maybe the beginning of this year mm-hmm. um, for shirtless running in snow. Mm. What I've never, I'm very open for cold water swim, all that kind of stuff. I've never considered shirtless running. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So two things. One, just to clear up, the, the um, cold water <laughs> swimming, I would call it, my version is is actually called cold water dipping. Dipping. Okay. So I just I just I, I I I've done this a few times where I've turned up and someone's like, okay, so what do you think? What, like a twenty minute swim, and I'm like, no, I, I I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in yeah. and jump out, and yeah. maybe I'll spend you know sixty seconds in there. But okay. my, mine is about cold water immersion rather than I, I'm not a very good swimmer. Yep. Funny enough, I I was telling my my daughter about the time I swam from Alcatraz to San Francisco. Yeah. Uh, um, a few, I've sailed that and a that few was days. scary. Yeah, but, well, like... but this is the thing. I big up this stuff. Yeah, I swam that. And my daughter was like, you did. Because my daughter is a fish. Right. And she is the most, I mean, I'm a proud parent, but she is. I wouldn't be surprised if she becomes an Olympian. Butterfly is her thing. And I don't know where she gets it from because I showed her a clip of me swimming. <laughs> swimming from Alcatraz. I think it's the most embarrassing humiliating thing i've ever seen i swam it i did yeah, it yeah, yeah but i didn't put my head in the water once and not oh, wow. because of worried about turds and sharks yeah just because i can't swim and i, d- right. I just i've never been taught how to do it wow, so i amazing. swam the whole thing with my you can't anyone listening now can't see my movement but just it's imagine a dog a imagine paddle. a dog it wasn't a doggy paddle it was kind of it was kind of cruel but with a head rigidly out of the wow. water yeah and anyway i digress we're, we were yes. talking about yeah, uh, yeah. Swimming. Yep. the cold water running do you know what? For me, the cold is a very important thing to embrace. And I think, especially during lockdown, people were looking for anything just to give them a, a hit of, of, of endorphins, mm-hmm. a, a change. And I've been a long-term fan of Wim Hof. Mm-hmm. 
and I've been following him. And actually, the funny enough, the the kind of the bear skin running, it wasn't something I had seen lots of other people doing. I just thought it's snowy, and I get really hot yep. when I'm uh, when, when I'm exercising anyway. And I just thought I did it one day, and I was like, this this is giving me the same feeling that I get with those cold water immersions. Yeah, and uh, and and I posted a photo, and and I think. It, either captured people's imagination because they were horrified. Uh, but also I think people were slightly bemused. Yeah. I think the whole cold thing is interesting because, you know, Wim Hof on one hand, we should all be, it's like an obvious thing. It's, you know, I've been following him for years, but yeah. of course cold is good for you. Of course yeah. it boosts your immunity. Of yeah. course we have slightly ruined our bodies by, by enjoying too much good kit the, well, the yeah. comfort of all yeah. the kit on sale here mm-hmm. um and having hot showers and things of course we're we're ruining our ability to uh naturally uh control our temperatures now i'm not saying we should all be walking around naked because that would well it, it we, would we be weird now licenses. but then it would become it would, it would be a different show i'm sure there is yeah, a, a show there is a couple like that, um yeah. and i'm all for embracing that i spend a lot of time with naked people yeah um but uh i uh yeah, it was one of the things that I embraced during lockdown. I didn't have access to cold water where mm-hmm. we were. Obviously, even though we live quite near the Thames, yeah. we, we weren't allowed to, to travel. So for me, it was it was a way of getting that rush without the water. Yeah, amazing, amazing. Okay, um, so this is back to the programs that you've presented, like Country File and Animal Park, I think. Um, embarrassing bodies, you know, you didn't really do that. Um, but with all of those that you've done, and and also, I think, uh, so the question was about, you know, you've got some incredible titles to your name and, and sort of documentaries to your name, and United Nations Patron of the Wilderness. Um, what is it, I think we maybe have talked about this a little bit, but what is it that you love so much about being outside and active? <laughs> I'm still chuckling because of the embarrassing bodies. I went <laughs> That's going to be a thing. But, but, well, I know, but what <laughs> About four years ago, I went through a little stage of about six months where I was asked like 10 times a day, oh my God, you're the embarrassing bodies man. Can you have a look at this? Honestly, it ha- I mean, it was, re- and, then wow. it's, it, and then it just stopped. So I don't know, maybe my hair was falling in a funny, <laughs> in a funny way. Maybe I had just like lost some weight on my cheeks. Yeah. I don't know, but then That's it stopped hilarious. and it finished. Anyway, okay, yes. I, I, so, so t- tell me the question again. Yeah, yeah. I just... so I guess the, um, with all of these like wonderful titles yeah. and things and, I mean, maybe we've talked about the, you know, what's it, what is it about the Great Order that you love so much? But maybe actually, maybe you could tell us a little about the United Nations patron of yeah. the wilderness. Like, what, what does that mean? So that, that was a role I took on about five years ago or so. And it, it came about through my great friend, Lewis Pugh, a mm-hmm. uh, great outdoor um, cold water swimmer who has, has done some extraordinary um, swims always to highlight environmental issues. And and Lewis uh, introduced me to the United Nations Environmental Programme based out in Kenya and Nairobi. And it was just before I'd climbed Everest and I wanted to use my climb as a way of understanding our impact as a climber on the mountain, the, 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 the impact of our litter, of our footprints, of pooing, all those things what is that impact? Is it as bad as we're always reading? And can we do more? And then also to combine that with going to schools, meeting politicians around the world and sharing some some of my own experiences in the South Pole, the North Pole of these places, because I realize how very lucky I am. Yeah. 
And and to address the elephant in the room, I'm also aware of my own carbon footprint by getting to those places. So how can I justify um, doing what I do and being an environmentalist? And for me, it was it was basically stripping everything back to the basics that uh, my work involves travel and it always will. I can't make the shows I do without some form of travel. Now we've done lots in the UK during lockdown, it works, but I'm back to traveling internationally again. So for me to justify those long trips and the, the exaggerated carbon footprint, I need to try and give back. And, and by giving back, I do just that as environmental, uh, as um, a patron of the wilderness. I, I am a voice to often landscapes that don't have a voice or a people who have a voice. So whether it's the rainforest, the deserts, the mountains, the, the, the rivers. So I, I share those on international platforms. When I, as I travel around the world, I go to meet kids who haven't been lucky enough to, to, to go to these places to see the flora and the fauna. Uh, so it's, it's basically giving, giving a voice and championing the wilderness that's under threat all around the world and, and trying to explain to those who've never uh, seen it or, or been to it what we stand to to lose. Amazing. Do you know, there was an event I went to, or kind of a conferency type thing, but called the Blue Earth Summit last year. And it was one of the first I'd been to like that. And it was, again, it was telling all these micro tribe kind of stories from all these communities all over the place and where people had, had the very, I guess, fortune to travel to, but came back to share these stories to a wider public. It was, it was quite inspiring. So, well, thank you, I guess, from, from that side of things. <coughs> um, the final question is possibly two in this, but it's about family. Um, you've got two lovely young children and um, I, myself, I have three, but I think the person that wrote in, it was kind of like, how do you still, um, a lot of people put on hold their adventurous plans when they have children. They kind of think I've got kids like, Oh, we can't do this. We can't do that. Like, how do you keep going? You kind of mentioned the micro journeys type thing, but how can, how can a family still, get the satisfaction that they've been on an adventure and they've done something with, with kids in tow. I think, I think you just have to be adaptable and creative. So for me, when, when family came along, young family, we, we sort of just, we, we went with what we could do. So, so a little bit of like that analogy I gave to, to some of the, the people I've met on new lives in the wild, it's making the most of what you have and, still being who you are and true to, to your values. So for us, actually, when the children were very young, we traveled a lot with them. It's very easy. Anyone that's got really young children, it's, it's very, very simple. And then there's, there's a, a difficult stage, a difficult patch where it's just it's not very enjoyable. The children aren't getting anything out of it. And then we're now, my, my two children, Ludo and I, are, uh, are 11 and 12, and now they're just back at peak interest. They're, they're, they're suddenly getting really fascinated by the world now because of the nature of what i do my children have been unbelievably lucky and they pre-lockdown we, we went to some extraordinary places and we got to really immerse ourselves and see it and i think my advice to to others is to, that children are really adaptable mm -hmm. so you might think you can't you might think it's too dangerous well to be honest travel with children is probably the safest thing you can do because there is a universal sort of acknowledgement that children are children are the most precious commodity commodity that's a terrible yeah, word yeah. the most precious gift. thing gift that we have so therefore and and it actually opens doors and people will embrace you and and, and welcome you in uh so for for us actually we, we we have tried to go to unusual places and and off the beaten track so 
been up to a passion of mine is Scandinavian regions of the world. So we've been up to off-grid cabins right up in the in the Arctic Circle, and just spending time with the family and making sure that the children will be getting something out of it. That it's not just for you. And yeah. and and that's that's my advice on on others who have family who are worried that you can't. Oh, there's a cost factor, of course. That the cost of traveling with a family can um, can go up. But you know we will bunk in one room together so the yeah. accommodation doesn't change that the travel to get to those locations and then yeah. on terms of a bigger scale you know I, I struggled with that about on an on a personal arguably um selfish level what is appropriate and what isn't appropriate for a dad to do and i climbed everest when the children were uh, i think they must have been seven and eight years old okay. and it was a sweet spot for me because they were old enough to be really excited by it and young enough to not have watched the film and basically think I was going to die. Do you, do you sit them through the documentaries afterwards? Uh, I don't know if they've watched. Uh, well, there's a lot of horror documentaries yeah. on Everest, uh, obviously. Yes. I don't know if they have. They, they watch all my stuff now yeah. uh, voluntarily. I hasten okay. to add. I don't, we don't make. We don't. We don't. Hour. We don't tie them to a chair and make them watch Daddy uh, as part of the, the thing. No, they actually really enjoy that. I think. I think they kind of enjoy it. Yeah. I think I'm incidental. They couldn't care less about me, but they like seeing the stuff and the people that that I'm with. But um, yeah, no, I think it's just about. Um, uh yeah making the most of of what you have absolutely the the final part of that question comes from a child when you leave um when you leave your children behind to go on your, your work trips etc the adventures you do do you have a teddy or something like a charm that you take with you that's a kind of it's always there well, I not every time, but actually when I climbed Everest, my two children gave me their favorite toys. One of which, bizarrely, go figure how, you know, everyone knows that there's weird, weird toys that creep into your life. And my daughter had this uh, squeaky carrot that was originally a dog toy that I think she decided she liked more than the dog. So Brilliant. this squeaky carrot was her favorite toy. And my son actually had, uh, when he was born, uh, I'm a, an ambassador for WWF, the charity, not the wrestlers. Uh, and, and WWF gave me this little, um, it's like a little soft, flattened teddy bear of a polar bear. Mm -hmm. No, of a panda, sorry. Yeah. And, uh, and Ludo uh, wanted me to take that. And Iona wanted me to take the squeaky carrot. So I have this rather wonderful picture which still makes me smile of me on the summit of everest holding this little dog toy carrot uh, and this little flat uh squashed panda bear uh on the summit and they were with me in the bag and funny enough those two toys are now they're not framed because actually they've become quite symbolic and actually whenever i am feeling a bit because i get homesick as well now when i leave my family if i'm feeling a little bit homesick not that my children still use these little uh, fluffy toys. Um, I sometimes pop them in my bag just for kind of old time's sake. Amazing. Ben, thank you so much for your time today. It was, uh, it was really great to speak to you. Thank you. Likewise. Thank you again so much to Ben for taking the time to chat with us. I know I'm feeling pretty inspired for our next adventure and I hope you are too. Thank you also to our season partners, Whereabouts, where you can select your next adventure at whereaboutsholidays.com. Don't forget to check out our competition with Bushcraft Magazine too. Head over to outsideandactive.com forward slash bushcraft for details on how to enter. Thank you for listening, and until the next time, enjoy the outside.